Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. So, the, the, the holy grail, if you like, cutting to the chase, is, is there an inverse transform, if you like, between people, a uh, complex array of desired behaviour outcomes, can we map those into interactions which might give rise to them? Uh, and those interventions could include a range of types and possibilities and might be applied separately or, or in combination. In particular, government policies, which I might say are a design process in themselves, you don't often think of those things, but, but everything uh, around government policy is a design, they might be combined with what we'd more formally call physical design and engineering to shape a behavioural outcome. And a simple example might be safety in cars, but, you know, with the technical capability to manufacture and fit a strong yet comfortable uh, webbing system combining with the regulatory requirement to wear seat belts to achieve a simple behavioural out- simple behavioural outcome. This is, a, you know, obviously a trivial problem, um, or uh, the problem is not trivial, but the solution is. Um, but the inverse, inverse transform is very unlikely to be realised any time soon for any uh, complex system, and so it's essentially a heuristic process we have to follow to find out how to evolve the behaviours we need to address some of these societal problems. Now, government's been mindful of this for for some time, and uh, some of you will have heard of the Nudge Unit Behavioural Insights Team, which started up in the Cabinet Office. It was started by a guy called David Halpern, uh, who actually, think, I'm not sure he trained as an architect. I think he might have done it. Maybe his father was an architect anyway. And he uh, used the work of Richard Thaler, some of you will be aware of, uh, and Thaler was a colleague, or is a colleague, of Daniel Kahneman. Um, is it Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow? It's a really interesting book to read. I do commend it to you. Um, and government uses things like this. This is a very early uh, example, a tool for policy called Mindspace. So there's a checklist of the things you might think about to derive certain actions. And you can see from the right-hand column the sort of actions we're talking about, tax breaks, subsidies, taxation, fines. So carrots and sticks, and a way of if you like, working out a process of evolving the type of policy that would achieve the outcomes that you want. An example intervention might be to require people to sign their tax forms at the beginning of the tax form rather than at the end. And experiments were done in this area and it showed that actually people were on on the whole statistically more likely to be honest if they signed their tax form at the beginning than at the end. Very interesting. Leave that in your mind. So the question in mind when considering the Built uh, for Living study was how to design architecture engineering influence behavioural outcomes. And I refined this broad question, which is obviously um, like boiling the sea, it's a very, very broad question, um, into a sort of scale uh, question. So at one end you've got products, uh, where I think designers of products understand behavioural outcomes pretty well. So Jonathan Ive at Arup, uh, sorry, <laughs> not at Arup, but Apple, understands uh, very well how to get you to buy uh, iPads and iPhones and, and all the apps and so on. In the middle, you've got architects who work across a range of, of, of drivers from aesthetics through to strictly functional, but there isn't necessarily a uniform uh, approach there. So I've said behaviours may be a weak influence. And at the other end, you've got how do you design district cities, how do you do the urbanism thing? Uh, and that's driven largely by political vision rather than, than by design. There are some agencies who do work in that area. One is... Uh, um, a spin-out from, actually from, from UCL, which uh, is called Space Syntax, some of you may be aware of, which uh, uses analysis to, to consider 
what factors it make people feel safe or productive in the built environment and, and basically do mapping of, of street scenes and so on to evolve that. So this was my initial thing. We understand one end of this. In the middle, it may be a bit fuzzy. At the other end, we're not too sure. So that's one axis, if you like, in the challenge set that I, I tried to address. Um, but without clear focus, uh, it would have been very difficult to, uh, to make any progress. So for that reason, um, I picked uh, with colleagues, obviously, three areas where I felt we could look across the scale and make some contributions. So one, health and well-being. How do you actually keep people healthy through the design of their built environment? Uh, an example might be, you know, where do you put stairs in a building? Do you make them prominent so that people use them rather than the elevators or lifts? Uh, the middle one is very well known and I guess touches upon the title, the, the theme of this lecture, which is sustainability. How do we encourage people to use resources in a, in a way that's sustainable and they can be aware through their usage of what's going on and without actually being overbearing. And the final one, performance and productivity, is very important because just a small improvement in productivity, say in commercial buildings, is worth a huge amount of money. And office designers are very concerned to get people to feel more comfortable, more productive, etc., in their workplace. And that might be a hospital, it might be a university, it might be a school. Uh, and so we chose a number of case studies which uh, across all of those domains, and you've got those in, in the report, which uh, I hope you will, will enjoy. Um, so these three form a grid, if you like, against the scale. So we've isolated the problem down to something we can start to study and, uh, and make progress on. So the publication you've got in front of you um, contains, I think, probably more than 10 case studies, but there are real-time user interactions with things like energy monitors. Um, there's a thing called Energy Sixth Sense, which is about making people aware of how much energy they're using in their workplace. Um, Trash Track was, I think, an MIT project uh, by Professor Ratti on how far your waste, like plastic bags, cans, actually travels in getting to its end point of disposal, which is surprisingly high, and you'll find the case study in the report. Philips has done a lot of work on the therapeutic benefits of lighting, different light levels and hues in therapeutic environments like hospitals and so on. Um, clearly, Macmillan do wonderful things with cancer patients. How do you design wards that put patients at ease? Um, there's some work, uh, I think, that came out of Arab Associates on Lancaster or Grammar School. And uh, the factory of the future is a very interesting example, which I hope will... Uh, capture your imagination. How do you design an environment where you can actually get maximum creativity out of engineers and designers working, say, on a, on a new jet engine? You know, there are different phases of thought which we'll cover uh, in this. And th there's, the, <laughs> there's the publication which you have before you. So it, it's, um, it's a report um, which, with a series of workshops we held, three workshops um, at Royal Institute of British Architects, REBA, Arup and the Royal Academy of Engineering. Um, we had good support from government departments, so we had uh, Department of Health, my department, DCLG, um, we had Cabinet Office and Department of Energy and Climate Change all sent senior officials to come along and, and, and work with us. And of course we produced the one publication. I hope you find the, the example interesting and amusing. <laughs> this isn't in the, other than this, I don't think this is in the book, no, but I thought that was right, quite good and the uh, the person who did the editorial work uh, found that for me. And I think it's probably true. Um, so the workshops I've mentioned uh, concentrated the first one on the, the broad picture. So what's already known. Um, we had uh, some really good attendees there. We had people um, uh, 
from the office design environment, we had a cabinet office. Um, I'm not sure if David Halpern didn't come along to that, Department of Health, etc. The second one um, was, was an interesting approach we took at Arup. So we were assuming, I don't, some of you may have heard of ideas, factories or sandpits. I'm sure this university will have run them. We attempted to run a sandpit where the outcome was not research projects, but research calls. So, you know, if ESRC were going to be um, pro provoked, if you like, to put out a call, and in fact they said they would on the back of this publication, what would the topics be that needed to be researched? Uh, and so, again, you'll, you'll find some of those topics in the, in the back of the report. And that was quite fruitful. We came up with a number of different uh, ideas there. The final one was on the Royal, from the Royal Academy of Engineering, and we then focused on where things were going in the future. Uh, and we looked at multidisciplinary working, which then subsequently led to some recommendations, which again I'll talk about, about cross-disciplines between social science and physical science. It's not a pair of communities that necessarily work easily or you know, routinely together, but it has a great benefit in, in connecting those up. The other thing we looked at was unexpected consequences, which you can imagine in policy terms is very important. You, know, you take a particular interaction, but actually what else are you doing? Think of the, recent, you know, the Chancellor's recent... Uh, Backtrack. I mean, there are unintended consequences, perhaps, of taking money away from people who, you know, actually are trying to earn a living, but actually they've become poorer. Um, there are also unintended consequences in the built environment, say, of retrofitting buildings and having condensation and mould growth issues. So all those things uh, need to be considered uh, pretty effectively. Um, the team, I mentioned Chris Clegg, uh, was uh, an advisor to Rolls-Royce on the design of multifunctional creative facilities. Richard Cowell was, or is an architect and is past technical director of Arup, and uh, Dr. Mac Natasha McCarthy was policy advisor, a policy lead at the Royal Academy of Engineering. She's now doing a slightly more elevated job at the British Academy, which is the academy which deals with uh, arts, humanities, and social sciences. And then we had a lot of help from colleagues, both at UCL and at Arup, um, Felicity Davis and Claire Hughes, and at the Royal Academy of Engineering, uh, Philippa Westbury, um, who um, has done a, a lot of excellent work. So we, the next image is amusing, and I think rather synthesised, but, you know, <laughs> we, don't want it, we don't want this to happen. So the, the first example I'm going to give you, um, which is in the, in the report, the next slide, um, relates to um, a light switch. So we all know that... Uh, that kids and maybe teenagers leave lights on and don't think about this. So this is something that Joseph Giacomin, who uh, is the design lead at Brunel University and worked in the automotive sector previously on the human factors elements of how you design cars that people want to buy and use, um, sort of evolved this idea. So how do you actually gently nudge people if you've left the light on so you can see how it works? So initially, it's you know, if it's left on for less than an hour, the light switch remains green and then it becomes orange, first of all, over four hours, and over eight hours, it becomes red. So this is an interesting area. Would this have an effect? I don't know. You'd probably get rebound behaviours where people get used to it and, and don't respond anymore. But this is an example of the sort of experiment that, that people are doing to, um, to try and see what happens in, in that area. The next one from the Royal College of Art um, is, is power cord, which, again, is an interesting intersection with... A true design team really understanding the human factor side very deeply, which gently nudges people by uh, essentially playing birdsong at various volumes and uh, agitation levels, depending on the amount of instantaneous power being drawn from on your, your consumer unit. 
I don't know how well that would work. I, think, I can imagine being fairly irritated by it, but maybe that's the idea. Um, but nevertheless, they, they've been conducting some interesting experiments. So they call it sonification of electricity consumption. Uh, so clearly for small loads, it makes a small noise and then uh, gets larger. The other project which I've, um, I've shown here, if I get the laser... To, yeah, so this is Energy Sixth Sense, perhaps a little bit more serious. And this was tried out at Arup uh, in 13 Fitzroy Street, where a number of Internet of Things type sensor devices were installed on each floor of the building in various locations. And the data was collected and statistically treated and then presented back into public space displays uh, as intensity diagrams and color diagrams showing which floor was actually using more energy. And the, the, the idea there is that the competition factor uh, between people on different floors in different groups would actually affect the energy consumption. In fact, this does work. And if, Interesting work, again, by the Behavioural Insights Unit shows that if, and in fact, the electricity companies, certainly our electricity company, EDF, give you a, an example of what a typical usage would be, and you're using this much, so you're using a bit more, perhaps, than typical. You feel I'm a bit guilty about that. I must try and ease back on it. But apparently, the greatest influence is if they were able to show you what your next-door neighbour's using or the other people in the street, and then you really do feel you've got to compete with it, and that's what we're trying to do here. And it, it did work. Um, so the Department of shows some collaborators in this, this longitudinal energy use service. And I don't know whether you're familiar with the idea of non longitudinal surveys. Longitudinal means a longer time series. So there's one called the, the English Housing Survey, which is really about looking at uh, how people use their properties, etc., and occupancy against time. Uh, and it's obviously very important to sample those regularly each year. This is a new initiative which has come out from the Department of Energy and Climate Change on... It's a major source of data in the department characterised by technical and economic slant. So the policy documents look at how buildings, rather than people, uh, should be warmed with low-carbon heat and become more efficient. There's been growing awareness that data about people and um, behaviour is needed to understand how to reduce energy consumption and CO2 emissions. Analytical innovation, innovations that seek to bring a more human element into the picture have invariably ended up more technically than socially focused. This is typical that engineers tend to think of the solution rather than the holistic problem, perhaps. And so data collected in, in 1996 showed a basic but important relationship between household size and energy consumption. And it showed that two people living as one household use 60% less energy than two people living separately. I guess that's quite interesting as, you know, the atomic family tends not to be so much of a norm. Um, and when DEC published its energy follow-up survey in January 14, the equivalent data supported the effect of household size. So this is a study that's affecting policy in, in, in DEC. And my, my colleague, um, Adam Cooper at UCL, who's an ex-DEC uh, advisor, is working on this with, uh, with colleagues in the Energy Institute in UCL. And again, there's more detail in, in, the, uh, in the study, in the book. Um, an example including behavioural, in, in, behavioural influences given by this data set of member offices in the Better Building Partnership. The distribution of actual energy performance against EPC rating is at best only loosely correlated. Well, this might suggest why the Green Deal was not such a good idea. Um, so the actual rating of the building and the actual energy usage, as by measure, hasn't, doesn't tie up terribly well, which is really quite concerning. And you can see probably in more detail in the book where you can read the, the text that um, that doesn't follow through. So it's necessary, I think, and many others do, to perform before and after physical tests 
and not just an estimation of what the energy usage, so we can see what the as-designed versus as-built performance is for new buildings or in retrofit by doing the measurements explicitly. And the dependencies on occupant behaviour and the need to provide early warning or equivalent failure or equipment failure suggests that embedded monitoring sensors are a good idea and smart meters are clearly a step towards this. So although there are downsides also on those, there is a, a way of addressing this. But behaviour can account for perhaps 20% variability in energy usage because different cultures have, you know, some people speak or talk, converse at an open front door, others have the windows open, uh, a great deal and so on. So it's very, very difficult if to isolate behavior from energy performance. Um, so this is a two-sided interaction. Uh, buildings and, and, and their design influence the behavior and emotional, emotional states of their occupants. A very simple example might be a building where the windows can't be opened, uh, typical of a recent commercial pr property. The effect of occupant behavior may have little effect on energy performance but occupants may also feel powerless to influence their environment. And this has become an ingrained belief. So you'll find that people in, say, particularly government offices, don't believe they can have any influence over their building. And when Arup designed a building, I think, in San Francisco for the local government authorities, um, they had to instruct people what they could and couldn't do in the building, including open windows. So there is a strong uh, influence there of, of how buildings influence behavior and, and behaviour influencing buildings. And of course, getting the interaction right, making it a human-centred design is, is very, very important. And it's a key driver where crowdsourcing and uh, 3D simulation can really help to, to train people. Um, so, talking a little bit, I would mentioned Chris Clegg's work on the factory of the future. Um, this is a diagram uh, which shows complete con connectivity, but it shows the thought processes that uh, his group went through between the goals and metrics for quality of, uh, of, of a building and its operation, the people, the buildings and infrastructure design, technology, uh, culture, uh, processes and practice, etc. And the Factory of the Future from Chris Clegg at Leeds and his colleagues looked at productivity and those performances, improvements that arise from well-designed socio-technical systems, so including not just the engineering design or the architecture, but actually the, the sort of jobs that the people were doing in that environment and the flow of that work through um, the process of design in, in engineering. Um, so technologies support this, you know, integrated through design, manufacture, service, supply, promoting and enabling interactions between various partners. And social data, social media and big data are kind of used routinely in this area. Organizations and cultures must be agile enough to accommodate disruptive technologies in this area, and so the design can influence that. So um, people work in different ways according to the phase of their, their design and engineering thinking. So this is a, literally a picture of the sort of ways of, that people in Rolls-Royce think at different stages. They go from this den uh, concept at the beginning when they're brainstorming a new idea for a turbine blade or whatever it might be, or a, a design. Then they go into a, a state where they're then looking at uh, the knowledge they need to support that, this hive idea of individual people thinking in their cells, and then it, integrating the knowledge they've collectively developed uh, as a club, and then ultimately um, in, in the cells doing the manufacturing engineering. And I visited the factory where this has been carried out. It's, it's quite inspirational as you walk around the mezzanine where each of these uh, different operating spaces and you look down then at the manufacturing floor, so there are real machine tools in the middle making real stuff, and it's tremendously motivating for an engineer to see those designs being implemented uh, right in front of them, and, and that really 
really works tremendously well in maximizing productivity. Um, so this is an example, again, where we're looking at productivity in, in the workspace, but actually looking at the intersection with transport. And this is a, an example from Arab, and I'm going to have to read this out so, uh, uh, because it's quite detailed. So this is about the MTR Admiralty Underground Station in Hong Kong. It's one of the busiest underground stations in the world with more than 800,000 passenger journeys a day. Uh, and a proposed expansion, which I think now has either been done or is underway, will double the number of platforms. So the station will grow from three levels served by eight escalators to seven levels connected by 48 escalators, increasing the number of vertical passenger interchanges. The client's objective was to allow passengers to move easily and intuitively around the station and to minimise costly and disruptive changes to existing wayfinding, signage and CCTV installations. So to identify the impact of the signs on behaviour, and signage is very, very important, a speed was used as a proxy, so the time a person took to navigate the virtual environment, this is quite an accurate representation of the design, although the station hadn't been built, was taken as a, as a proxy. It's a sign of a more frustrating journey. So the client's aspiration was that each user journey should take less than one and a half minutes. The scenario was modelled using Arab's real-time synthetic environment, which allows the users to experience with the use of a joystick the navigation of the architecture before it's built. And this is clearly easier and more economical than uh, changing the signage once the building is complete. So the completed station will have 970 signs, of which all are represented in the model, and over 1,500 users spontaneously navigated the virtual station and completed a designated task with start and end points uh, using the signage. And the routes they took, along with the locations where they searched for clues, were logged, providing important feedback for the designer. And these results enabled human factor specialists to capture, analyse and playback user tests. And doing that identified 235 potential problems uh, with the current signage, which were, of which 145 were corrected at this stage, representing a huge cost saving. So the model accurately represents the proposed three-dimensional geography, geometry, and uses several types of representation. Realistic visual appearance with peripheral vision, contextual dynamic agents and sound, navigation, at an accurate speed and, and user log display. And I actually had a play with this. They, they also did the King's Cross interchange, if you know that, where at St Pancras in London. And you can go up and down escalators and in and out of ticket barriers and so on. It's extremely accurate and allows a lot of cost saving in advance of uh, the actual construction to, to take place. So what is really important here is, is systems thinking um, in, engineering, in engineering systems. Um, Collaboration and co-production between designers and engineers. And you can see some quotes there, um, wealth of knowledge about interrelationships, but it's fragmented and distributed across different professions and disciplines, across people working at different stages. Uh, there's a barrier, there's no single agreed model of a human behavior that can be used in design. And so working together from the outset of a, of a project is absolutely key uh, in this area. Um, there are examples that I'm going to give later on around that. So systems and synthesis design methods and design principles. We need to include behavioural issues from the very beginning of the design process, in particular paying particular attention to behavioural assumptions that exist at the outset. Um, so making sure there's a constant feedback, if you like, between the, the designers and the client, which tools like the Arab tool can promote, 
Uh, and to make this, uh, we need to get designers, engineers, behavioral experts, and users using shared languages, goals, metrics, processes, and tools, so maybe representational tools, um, put an emphasis on multidisciplinary and cross-sectoral working, including collaboration between social scientists and engineers, and then particularly using systems thinking, um, focusing on different behaviors in the same studies, such as energy productivity and health, so that potential synergies can be identified and understood. And of course, how do we actually get collaboration into edu education and training quite earlier on? I think probably architecture schools, I mean, looking at, uh, at colleagues here, do deal with that as a, as a part of what they do and have done for many years. It's one of the uh, Renaissance, last Renaissance-type subjects, but it isn't happening across edu and general engineering training. So the following uh, represent some views from Arab Associates, which is Arab's um, architecture practice. They think that energy, water, and waste is understood pretty well in terms of behavior in buildings, hence the tick, but they don't think that health and well-being is so well covered, um, and nor performance and productivity. So this is just their view. Um, my view is that actually probably the first one isn't as understood as <laughs> completely either, um, and well worth studying. Um, so Arup, Ovarup, who was the founder of, uh, of Arup, Ovarup is a Danish guy, who founded the company back in 1946, had this view that inclusive design was the way forward. So they already started from a good place, placing people at the heart of design, acknowledging diversity and difference in clients, offering choice where single design solution doesn't accommodate all users. So rather than forcing one particular option on people, you need to uh, allow flexibility of use. And then yielding buildings and environments that are really enjoyable to use as well as being convenient. So the first of their issues is health. Um, getting people feeling healthy, following well-being, promoting lifestyles in the office, etc., is really important, has considerable commercial value. And this is an example here. So based on that um, typical split of, of costs, just tiny gains in staff health and well-being could, could deliver significant financial savings, as, as is evidenced here by the, uh, you know, the 90% of actually operating uh, costs for a business are staff costs. Um, and attendance is, is influenced by well-being, which in itself is a function of physical and mental health, as well as satisfaction with the workplace. So it's not just about what makes you well or ill, it's actually about what makes you happy and contented and, and really pleased to be in the environment. So design in the context of workplace involves physical and management of architecture. Inactivity, uh, is, is, a, is a killer, as, as we know, and, and many offices have, don't encourage people to walk around particularly. Architectural design can strongly influence em, ac, exercise. Activ, activity is critical to health and can be increased sub, subliminally as well as consciously by design. For example, as I said earlier, stairs can be placed in a prominent position in buildings, encouraging people to use them rather than lifts. Now, this is obviously practical for the first few floors of a building, but uh, you need then to think uh, for, uh, for higher rise, you will need lifts. In offices, variable height and stand-up desks, which uh, some of us may be already adopting, can help to uh, bring well-being through heart, health, and circulation. So these are desks which you can stand up for some of the day and do without your chair, and then you can sit down again when you, when you want a change in, uh, in activity. And you can see here, you know, uh, there are big threats there, 9.4% of all deaths uh, being attributable to inactivity. So there's a recognition by, um, by Arab associates that you know, we need to elevate the human health and well-being piece much more. 
highly within the environment of, of building design uh, and to reinvent buildings that are not only better for the planet but also for, for people. Um, now here are some interesting uh, examples. Um, this is a new standard I'll talk about a bit later on. RIAM is a very well accepted standard that my own company, BRE, promotes and that's got a balanced set of, of measures including a, a, a large part which is associated with well-being but, but well particularly emphasises exclusively on, on well-being but doesn't do other things. Um, and it's uh, the first building standard that focuses exclusively on human health and wellness. It marries best practice in design and construction with evidence-based medical and scientific research, uh, harnessing the built environment as a vehicle to support human health. So the wellbeing standard sets performance requirements in seven categories relevant to occupant health in the built environment, air, water, nourishment, light, fitness, comfort and mind. And spaces that conform with the, uh, the, 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 the measures can help create a built environment that improves nutrition, fitness, mood, sleep patterns and performance of its occupants. So I only recently discovered this, but it's, it's, it's an interesting uh, different view on, on buildings that focuses entirely on, on health. And this is a hierarchy of factors that kind of need, need to be considered in and around buildings. So obviously the primary ones of you need to have air and water, uh, obviously nourishment, light, fitness, comfort, and at the top, um, the, the mind, the, the feeling of uh, actually being happy in the environment and productive in the environment, supporting mental, emotional health, knowledge and awareness. And this also applies, of course, in therapeutic environments where if you're in hospital, you need to feel at ease, not threatened, comfortable, uh, conditions that lead to, to recovery. So the, the threats to well-being in, in buildings arise from a number of factors. Um, this is quite interesting and probably well known to colleagues here. Um, they're ranging from uh, high CO2 levels, and I'll say a little bit more about that later because it's quite alarming how low the high CO2 levels uh, need to be or, or can be as, beyond which uh, performance diminishes. So high, high CO2 levels can be caused by inadequate ventilation through to contamination by volatile compounds VOCs emitted from building fabric and furnishings. Most of these factors, uh, which have been described as causing sick building syndrome, can be eliminated by adopting a systems and human-centric view of design. And this is the point. So it's interesting to note, I think, in a, in a, a publication in a, in a peer-reviewed journal recently, that CO2 levels in, a, in excess of 500 parts per million have been associated with a reduction in, in learning ability. Uh, and given that the ambient CO2 level in the, in the world is about 400 parts per million, uh, I think that's a matter of some concern. Um, so we're actually quite close to a level which is far from being toxic. That's 10,000 parts per million. But nevertheless, we start to see a diminution in, in, in learning ability in schools, for example. So ventilation is pretty important, actually, in, in learning environments. Uh, and here's the example. So some of the work that we've instanced in the report include performance in learning environments. And actually, Victorian school designs were rather good um, because they put, for example, windows above sight lines so you couldn't see out of the window and watch what was going on outside unless you stood up. But it was very light. Um, as far as building performance was concerned, the walls were quite thick. And in fact, the thermal performance was good in summer and winter reasonably well. Um, and of course, uh, you also had probably better ventilation, natural ventilation, than where we have completely closed environments. So again, there's a bit of a sort of a tension between the need for energy efficiency and also the need for ventilation. So things like heat exchange in, in, in air 
heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems is crucial so that we can actually have fresh air, but it doesn't diminish from the thermal performance of a building. Um, so typical people, people who exercise, eat better, become more productive at work, you know, they typically are more patient with colleagues, they might smoke and drink less and so on. So these are some pretty obvious things that, uh, that Arup brought out and quoted, The Power of Habit by uh, Charles uh, Duhigg. Um, so simply giving people uh, a sense of agency, I think that the feeling that they're in control of their environment can have a genuine uh, benefit on how much energy and focus they bring to their jobs. So we need to understand some of these physiological rhythms. So there's actually a biomedical link in here as well. You know, what are the particular times of day when people need particular, uh, say, temperature profiles in their environment or lighting? All these are design factors which are human-centric uh, and are driven by basic um, physical rhythms. Um, so activity is affected in, in the workplace. Uh, so productivity is affected by uh, exercise, and uh, rare exercise is linked with uh, low productivity. So what we need is to actually provide um, a better place for people to focus. So it comes back to the factory of the future. For different types of tasks, we need different sorts of interaction. Uh, we need to have consider the environment with respect to the functionality and noise levels, the design look and feel, what makes you feel satisfied by, by what you're doing. And green space and the natural environment has a, has a really important role to play in promoting well-being. Uh, the values recognised in ecosystem services, which some of you may be aware of, which is the broader view of actually, rather than just financial value, what well-being value, environmental value is brought about by including uh, living things, both at districts and at building level. So not only do plants provide a healthy environment, but they also regulate humidity and when in sunlight produce oxygen, of course, but they have a physiologically therapeutic effect. And if you use them, for example, on green facades, green roofs, they also affect pluvial flooding by holding back, back water. So this is a, definitely a good thing to think about, uh, think about plants. So these are a list of things that, that Arup felt that a good building design can do for its occupants. I won't read them all through. Um, but these are things that might be thought about when design is being uh, considered and some of the goals and so on that uh, we might aim for. Very specifically, going back to uh, the therapeutic environment, uh, sort of for particularly people um, in, with dementia where their wayfinding uh, is very weak, they might get lost easily. So actually having simple symbols like those flower diagrams on the walls makes them recognize where they are and makes a less, a less alarming environment for them. So this was funded by the King's Fund, and they developed principles through Department of Health-funded programs for more supportive design for people with dementia. Initial visits to project sites showed that even in relatively new buildings, it was common to find poor signage and few cues to aid wayfinding, poor lighting, shiny floor surfaces, clutter, unwelcoming spaces, little personalization of bedrooms and underused gardens. So a small locally, Clinically-led multidisciplinary team, including carers, developed each project site to improve the space. And the schemes have involved decluttering, maximising natural light, improved lighting, laying mat flooring, improving wayfinding using colour and contrast, art and better signage. And large nurses' stations have been removed and staff now work in, in bed bays. This has made staff more visible, led to a reduction in use of call bells. It's created social spaces and better access to gardens, as, and that has a improved general well-being as well as providing activity. 
And so the re reports from the estates colleagues are that the design principles have improved better value for money and sustainability. And the schemes of impressive results, including improved care experience, reduction in falls, reduction in incidents of aggressive and disruptive behaviours, and increases in non-pharmacological approaches, so people are calmer without calming drugs, and improved staff morale. So a very practical example of just giving a broader view of the human-centred design on, on, um, on environments for, which are therapeutic. So the findings of the report, just drawing that to a close before I just go on to some of my own observations about multidisciplinary working. Energy, water and waste, health and well-being, productivity and performance. Essentially, we need to have a better understanding of, of, of the actual client, the way people use the environment, what forms and changes are needed to uh, improve those performances. Um, health and well-being, user centricity is very important and in performance productivity, design is a systems challenge involving both people and technology. And I think that putting a systems wrapper around social and physical science is one of the key learning points. So the eight design principles that came out are largely sort of recapping what I've just said. So consider human behavior as a socio-technical system. Use collaborative methods like, for example, the simulation tool I mentioned earlier on. Um, Consider the issues right from the beginning of the design process. Don't try and build the behavioural stuff in right at the end. During design, consider the key characteristics of the users. So that might be ethnicity, it might be uh, gender, age, demography, etc., habits and preferences. Make it easy and fun so that people actually want to use the, the design. There's nothing Machiavellian about this. Ensuring the system gives the users feedback on, on what they need to know about the system, like, for example, energy in a building. Empowering users to handle the problems with the system. So make things transparent, easy to use and to fix, and, and to learn apply lessons from, pardon me, from related domains. So that might be, for example, Joseph Giacomin's knowledge of how to design vehicles and so on. So the research suggestions we put forward to ESRC, which uh, were actually endorsed by their technical uh, director, Adrian Alsop, at the time, these were themes we thought needed some research. So carbon use in the home, empathic design, how do you do principles for design with people at the centre, influencing perceptions of security and well-being. So, for example, in districts, street lighting, um, the, the sight lines down roads, how do those influence the way people feel safe or not? Um, how people adapt to poorly working systems and the role of big data in evidence-based design for the built environment. So can we start to crowdsource some of the feelings of people, either in their own buildings and integrate those to control the building, or can we gather evidence straightforwardly that way? Understanding cues and responses, the relationships between behaviour and maybe subliminal environmental cues like lighting levels and so on. So there are some cross-cutting themes, holistic thinking, the users, engagement, the collaboration across the disciplines, understanding user values uh, associated with benefit and cost, and that's not, cost is not necessarily money, it can be also the way people feel and health, and establishing the metrics for user behaviour in the environment and, and connected places. So my final conclusions, which actually I, I delivered, I do some advice for the Singapore government, and they historically not really connected physical and social science very closely, but actually they do have some real issues about ageing demography and, and keeping people safe and contented. So um, I prepared a few slides which I've included here 
about why do we need to integrate social and technical research, and I thought that was probably quite relevant to the report, so this isn't necessarily in the report. But if you think about um, applied sciences and engineering, almost everything you do in engineering is for a human outcome. You know, there are very few engineering things that are purely for some abstract, non-human use. So user-centric factors are almost the elephant in the room. We really need to focus on people's needs and the way they react to, to uh, the way the engineering is done. And to de-risk and obtain right first-time outcomes, we need to take that view that wraps right the way across social and technical systems and actually you know, across physical space and across time, how are people going to react as they get older or as things change in the future, that must be taken into account. And you can't really do social and technical research in the context of design for behavioural outcomes but separately. You have to do that together. It's a kind of new lens for looking at these issues through. So how do you, how do you integrate those things? Well, pretty obviously, and we've tried to do it at UCL in my department, the policy department, we have 50% of us social scientists, 50% physical scientists. Do it with cross-disciplinary teams from the outset. Work collaboratively with the client or specifier of the research to really understand the bigger picture of the outcomes that are sought, rather than coming forward with a proposal for a solution before understanding it. Working on common ways of communicating with across the disciplines. Um, social scientists and physical scientists talk in different ways. So physical scientists tend to look with satisfaction at a very quantitative uh, picture, you know, a spreadsheet of results. Social scientists might use things like uh, structured interviews and what, whatever. But actually, over the aggregated number of those, the crispness of the data is, is equally good. And then we have to iteratively test and cross-check test the deductions made in those domains to make sure we really understand the outcomes. So the barriers which exist at the moment we need to tackle and, and also suggest some interesting research, I think maybe that ESRC or EPSRC together could look at, are creating uh, this type of involvement which I've shown on the right there between the social and technical, needing a common language, creating a common view, looking at the externalities that we accept, qualitative versus quantitative, and then defined and restrictive uh, methods versus fuzzy sorts of methods. And as I said at the bottom there, and not meant to be just a tribute to colleagues here, but actually architectural training is kind of getting that, I think, and has done for many years. But maybe that needs to be sort of formalised a, a little bit better to take us forward. Um, and that brings me to the end. So thank you very much indeed for your attention. If you want to, um, well, you can Twitter if you wish. <laughs> um, but the publication is available in full as a PDF, so do send it to your colleagues if you think it's worth sending. Um, because I think there's a bit, fair bit more and a bit more structure than I've expressed this evening in the document. Thank you very much.